You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. You're listening to the newest episode of Tech Tank, this great podcast, which I co-host with my colleague, Daryl West. Today's episode is focusing on students back in the classroom and whether or not people should have a remote option, especially as we see the rise in COVID cases among those students going back to school. Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona said students belong in the classroom and he's pushed for the last few months for a complete physical return back into schools. As students have returned over the last few weeks, COVID cases are on the rise again this time hitting K through 12 students, especially those who are unvaccinated and under 12 years old. We haven't heard yet whether or not there will be a vaccination for those under 12, but from what I understand, it may be soon, but they are getting infected. In particular, more than 500,000 new cases among students have been reported in the last two weeks, accounting for 29% of all cases reported nationwide. So as children below the age of 12 are still not eligible for vaccinations and we're at a greater risk of hospitalization and dangerous complications for their parents, I personally found out this week about a parent whose eight-year-old came back home with the variants and she passed away within four days. Friends, this is not about a health conversation in this episode. This is about what do we do when we are faced with these types of consequences and susceptibilities to the virus, and how do we ensure a contingency plan for our students? If you know me, I wrote it recently in a blog called No Child Left Offline, that we need reliable access to the internet so we can ensure, unlike the first wave of the pandemic, that regardless of who you are, where you live, what your resources are, that you are connected to stay in school, quote unquote, even if that means virtually. So I'm excited about today's episode because we're not only going to dig into what's happening around us with our students, but the implications of not solving the digital divide. And you all know I'm writing a book on this. It's coming out in the winter, but we've got to have a conversation on it. So I'm proud to be joined today by my colleague, John Vallant, who is a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution and the director of the Brown Center on Education Policy. He specializes in pre-K to 12 education policies and examines inequities in U.S. schools. Amina Vazula, who is the director of equity policy for Common Sense Media and works on expanding access to technology and digital well-being advocacy. And without that data from Common Sense Media, Amina, we would not know just how wide the divide was. So thank you for that. And Alejandro Rourke, who is the executive director of the Hispanic Technology and Telecommunications Partnership, a national nonprofit committed to promoting access, adoption, and the few full utilization of technology and telecom resources by the Hispanic Latino communities in the United States. Welcome, everybody. I want to start with you, John. There has been a lot of pushback on ensuring a remote learning option is available to students. Rather, more schools are pushing for in-person learning and nothing else. Talk to us a little bit about how schools have been handling, first and foremost, a return to school, right, in the face of the pandemic, because I know you're tracking it, and what existing safety measures 
are being put in place to sell, you know, help mitigate what we're seeing as high rates of COVID among our nation's students. So thanks for having me, Nicole. That's a really good and complicated set of questions. We, we just now are entering our third school year that's going to be deeply affected by COVID-19. And I mean, for me personally, I have a couple of kids in elementary school and it, it sort of hit me hard emotionally at the beginning of this year that, we, that we're really there, that we're really in school year three. And Nicole, you, I mean, you told a, a particularly heartbreaking story at the beginning of this podcast, but there are just kids across the country who are being affected by this in all kinds of different ways. And it's looked different across those three years. So the first year was 2019, 2020, where we essentially lost the spring. I mean, that, that spring was a mess as far as the type of instruction that kids actually got at the end of that school year. 2020, 2021, so, so last school year. Um, was a year where we had a whole lot of remote learning across the country, but we also really started to see a lot of variation in the settings the kids were exposed to. So Black and Latino students, for example, much more likely to experience remote learning than white students. And then this year has looked a little bit different so far. So now we're in the 2021-2022 school year, and and the focus is really on trying to minimize and, and really localize the disruptions as much as we can. And so most schools have been open in person but we're seeing a lot of focused quarantining based on kids' exposure to people with the virus or kids showing symptoms. And that has different implications that I, I think we'll get into, but it has implications for kids and for technology. And as you said, there's been a, a general push hard in the direction of in-person learning. I think for the most part, there's good reason for that. There's a lot of in-person learning that you just cannot reproduce in a remote environment. And when the Biden administration came in and they sort of expressed that schools ought to be the last to close and first to open, I think they did, in a way, depoliticize that issue a bit. And so we're seeing a sort of more unified push toward in-person schooling. But it's also, I mean, as, as you said, like this has been a really political experience for schools. Some of it is COVID, but, but schools are just sort of um, in the middle of partisan battles more than they, they really have been in, in my lifetime. And it's it's school reopenings, it's masking, it's critical race theory, it's gender identity. There's just a lot of stuff going on in schools right now that we don't typically have to deal with. And that's that's certainly been the case with, with COVID. So I did some analysis early on on which districts were the ones that looked like they were moving toward opening in person as opposed to remotely. And from the get-go, the sort of main predictor of what schools were doing has been the, the political affiliation of the area and not something that you might expect or hope, which would be maybe local COVID transmission rates or anything along those lines. So we've had this really, I mean, schools are political institutions, so their politics are always involved, but they're partisan to an extent and in ways that they really haven't been before. And so now, I mean, now we're getting uh, different precautions that schools are taking, but they're doing it in different ways across the country. And a lot of the fights politically now are over masking. And there's a, a website, Burbio, that's been really helpful in tracking kind of what's going on. And they, where Burbio is now is they say that about 40% of public school students are in places where the state is requiring masks. About 10% are in places where um, the districts aren't allowed to use ma masks, you know, where you have Republican governors who have intervened. 30% you have some local flexibility and then 20% in some legal limbo. And, but it's not just masking. I mean, there's, there's evidence that when you start to pile up these different precautions, whether it's masking or ventilation, vaccines, obviously, and distancing, you, you can do more to keep kids safe. And so we're sort of, that's where we are right now. We're in year three of this. We have, I think, more students in schools than we have in the past, but we still have a lot of kids who are being sent home and sent home often without schools having done enough to make sure that that, that remote 
learning experience is keeping pace with what it would be in person. You know, I'm so glad, John, that you spoke about that aspect of your research, because, you know, I follow that. I I cannot believe that the return to school has been so politicized, right? Which is, it's standing in the way, don't you think, in terms of us really getting to the bottom of how we make sure everybody's safe when they return back? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's politics are part of schools, they're part of society. So I I don't think it's realistic to think we could get politics out. But if we could get some of the charge, the partisan charge out, it would be helpful, I think, for decision making across the country. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I'll look for your next blog. <laughs> if you want to follow John Bellani's my colleague at Brookings and the Brown Center for Education Policy, just look at their stuff. It'll keep you informed as to what's going on. I want to switch it over uh, to Amina and talk a little bit about you know what you've heard so far, but the wonderful work that you all have done at Common Sense Media in tracking who's online and who's not online. And we already know that the first wave of the pandemic just showed the very awful and ugly, disparate disparities, right, that we had when it came to digital connectivity. Tell us a little bit more about your work in that space, Amina, and then what you're finding out even further, because I know you guys have been putting out more reports around this. Yeah. So first of all, thank you for having me on. And this is a really great conversation to have, especially right now. So what drove us to start to dig into this question of how many kids are in the K-12 digital divide and teachers as well as students was to actually start to define what we meant by terms like the homework. For a long time, those of us who've been working in the digital divide space We've been sort of laboring under a lot of sort of vague terms, and we felt like, especially during the pandemic, we needed to really define what was needed so that we could, you know, very clearly ask Congress and the states for help. And so we tried to identify how many kids were without adequate internet connections or devices to be able to robustly distance learn. And even that was a bit of a moving target because over the course uh, from the beginning of the pandemic, even up until now, and I think it'll continue to change, what we can do with digital curriculum and remote learning or distance learning is changing and evolving. So those tech specs also change. So, you know, I caveat all that with just an understanding of, you know, we have to be able to keep up with this type of data gathering to like keep an eye on you know, who's actually in the divide and not. And so what we what we discovered was that, you know, students need to have, no surprise here, both an adequate internet connection at home and a device that they can actually do schoolwork on. So a cell phone is not adequate. And to do robust distance learning, we found, you know, after sort of kicking the tires with tech companies and ed tech companies, school administrators and ISPs and device manufacturers, we found that ideal tech specs were somewhere around 210. So we're trying to really put some numbers on, you know, what what does it take, you know, to connect everybody? So a solid device that's curriculum appropriate, grade appropriate, you know, connectivity to the home that's actually robust enough to meet distance learning curricula needs. And then what does that look like? What we found was about 15 to 16 million students were in this K-12 digital divide and about 400,000 were also inadequately connected. And, you know, and I'd like to remind everyone, too, that these are persistent numbers. So, you know, five months, 12 months of a program to support the folks that are in the K-12 digital divide is not enough, right? Like you've got to follow these kids throughout their career in school because chances are 
most of them will remain in the K-12 digital divide throughout their school career. So whatever the solutions you come up with actually have to follow them throughout their school career. And, and that number is instructive to government officials because it gives you a sense of, okay, how big, how comprehensive your programs need to be. And I think this is even more important because as you just heard, schools are juggling so much. And during the course of the pandemic, they, I mean, for example, in Texas, you know, they came up with a plan not just to deploy devices and connectivity to the home and then work on fixed connectivity of the home. They also talked about a phase that included deployment. And this is an education agency. So, you know, certainly if we can start to address the infrastructure issues and the digital divide issues, that will not only have an impact on the people who are in the digital divide, but it will also relieve some of the stress that are institutions that are on institutions like education who are having to contend with, you know, the evolution of the delivery of education being able to be resilient in the face of crisis, you know, being able to, you know, shift to distance learning when they need to. But if they don't have that underlying infrastructure in place, you've just added a whole nother load of work to them. And, um, you know, that really holds education back. So I think, you know, the work is clear for government, especially for, you know, the experts in government that deal with broadband, telecommunications, and the digital divide that not only are people in the digital divide suffering, but now our institutions are being held back because of it. Oh my goodness, you are preaching to the choir. I think last year I spoke to over 2,000 school uh, educators and administrators about this. They were basically trying to figure out how to keep teaching while at the same time building broadband infrastructure, right? And I kept saying to myself, this has been around before the pandemic and we have failed our institutions by not making sure that, as you said, we have like a backup plan with regards to this. And Alejandro, what hurt me so much more is that black and brown students were affected. African-American and Latina students were the ones in Amina's data that were more likely to be less connected to the Internet. In some cases, you know, there were was one device right to multiple siblings. And there were barriers in the Latina community when it came to language. And let me say this last thing. We had many of those students where their parents were frontline workers. And so there was no parental guidance compounded what we're finding out now from a McKinsey study is that we're going to have learning losses. And I'll have John talk to this a little bit later in terms of what do we do? And those learning losses are going to be very severe for kids that were already disadvantaged in the first place. Alejandro, what do we do? Particularly when we try to close the digital divide among our students of color who are already facing such disparate impacts. Nicole, well, thank you again for, for having me and for raising these important questions. You know, as you mentioned, multicultural and immigrant students, along with their parents, have really experienced severe harm by the economic fallout of the pandemic. You know, and, and if we quantify that, they, our communities, our black and brown communities account for, as he specifically the Latino community, account for 23% of the initial job losses. Women in general accounted for 100% of the U.S. job losses in December of 2020, with Latino women alone accounting for 45% of that job loss. That loss of wages further compounded the barriers experienced by multicultural communities to accessing and benefiting from the economic benefits of having an at-home broadband connection. Or, you know, that 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 severe impact could have been mitigated or had been experienced in a less severe way had they been able to work from home or use the Internet as a tool to gain new skills or find new forms of employment. 
as we talk about the impact that digital disenfranchisement has had on Black and Latino students, I think that it's really important to be clear that the shift to online learning has led to an educational crisis that challenges our students' ability to achieve their potential and, and in fact, worsens disparities in graduation rates and college enrollment. Antonio Tijerino, one of our partners at HTTP, who is the CEO of the Hispanic Heritage Foundation, calls this effect the tech equity gap, uh, which seeks to acknowledge that underconnected multicultural students right now risk falling almost 10 months behind in their schoolwork and really challenge us to answer the question of how long it will take to come back from this gap. What are the lasting implications that this will have on a student's academic career? And I think more importantly, in their preparedness to be able to join uh, the rapidly transforming workforce of the future. And, and, and I think as, as, as someone that spends a lot of time thinking about, you know, equity for historically marginalized communities, I think this, this conversation about going back to in-person school really a dynamic one, because on the one hand, we see that a lot of the support systems that we have established to help support, you know, multicultural students in the classrooms or low-income students or students with uh, disabilities, you know, I'm talking about the, the school lunch program, I'm talking about a specialized education curriculum, we've concentrated all those resources in a way that, that is only available in person. So for on, on the one hand, I think that opening schools back up and ensuring that those students that have been the most kind of severely impacted by not being able to learn online have access to those resources. But also, I think that it's important to to also contextualize the fact that if we had better means to distribute um, those resources, or if if households had the digital means to connect to these resources online, we wouldn't see such an intense push to continue in-person learning and put a lot of our uh, students at risk of infection. You know, Chad, I'm going to jump back to you because I think Alejandro brings up really good points, which I think I've heard from educators. Now, let me just caveat. I am a child of a 30-year teacher, okay? So this is coming from the heart. I've heard a lot of people say, you know, forget this online stuff. We need these kids back in school. You know, is that something that is just inherent, John, to the school, you know, our school system and how we want to teach and normalize our students? Or is it related to teacher development and professional development around these resources? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. And kids, you know, different kids respond differently to different environments. I think for a whole lot of students, like the, the vast majority, really, and particularly for younger students, there just isn't a substitute for in-person learning. I mean, if, you, if, you've, if you've had a chance to watch any kindergarten classes happening remotely, for example, you just, you realize how much of kindergarten is personal and it's physical. It's, it's kids learning to share with each other and learning math by moving blocks around and all of those kinds of things. And it's just, it's very hard to reproduce that in a remote setting. So I think some of it is an instinct that we all have kind of a fondness for, for in-person schooling and an understanding that, that there's just, there are parts of it that are so hard to replicate. I mean, I, I, I personally am, am really forgiving of teachers through all of this. Like I think this has been, and Amina got to some of this too, with just how, like how much has been on the plate of teachers and also policymakers when it comes to trying to figure out how to keep kids safe physically. And then you have mental health issues, keep, keep, keeping kids connected and trying to teach them something. 
And for a lot of teachers, they're also trying to teach simultaneously kids who are right in front of them and then kids who are at home. And like for the life of me, I don't understand how that's possible that you can teach that that way. So, I mean, I, I think in general, schools have been, they were flat footed in their, in their response, but I think sort of understandably so. But I, I will just to echo some of what Amina was saying and also what, what Alejandro was, was saying. To me, there's a lot of, of blame societally for, the, for the, the problems that we had going into this that then exacerbated how, how hard the hit was. And there's just, there's just no excuse for the, the digital divide issues that we've had that you know, were, were outlined earlier. And if, if we had addressed that before, this would have been much easier on, on families so that when they did have to go home, it wasn't so disruptive and so disparately disruptive. And then a last, a last thought, though, that I, that I think is, is worth... Uh, putting out there is that virtual and blended learning, at least in the K-12 space, has been a pretty tough nut to crack. I mean, we have, if there's one research finding that's really consistent in kind of my space of K-12 education policy and practice, it's that online charter schools and online schools in general really have not performed well when it comes to the types of academic learning measures we have. And that's that's a hard topic to study because it's, you know, certain students sign up for online charter schools, but we have some really good studies of that. And it's just been, it's very clear that the, that it's hard to do well and that most of those schools are not doing it well. And then even some of the schools that are doing kind of blended learning where they're trying to do, they're trying to personalize learning and sort of pick out what parts of the school day and what parts of instruction can be delivered by a computer as opposed to by a teacher. Even that kind of thing has gone well in some places, but you know, it's, there have been technological challenges where, you know, someone's computer's not working that day and so that kid doesn't get much instruction. So I think there are good reasons to want in-person instruction for as many kids as we can and all of the kids who would benefit from it. But as, as you say, it's just, it's not possible right now for all kids to be in school all the time. And we need to make sure that, that kids who are at home or kids who more generally benefit and, and sort of want that, that remote learning when they get it, they get the best form of it that we can. I love that. I want to turn to Vita, but I want to pick up on something you said, John, and just sort of pick your brain on this. Right before the pandemic, I had completed a report about the local divides that existed between schools and communities, right? And I went and visited two schools, one in West Phoenix, Arizona, and one in Marion, Alabama, right outside of Birmingham, just you know, for my book primarily. But it just so happened two weeks later, the pandemic hit. And in both schools, they actually integrated technology into the classroom. They had iPad tablets that worked pretty well with teachers' ability to be creative with the students, but they both were poor performing schools despite the high motivation among low-income kids of having this new tablet and teachers being able to teach differently as a result of that. Could it be, John, too, that part of the challenge with remote learning, and I'm just curious, as you had mentioned, you know, we still see the statistics where online learning doesn't fare well, even among higher income um, households. But we do know it's almost like, you know, when I was growing up in public school, it, having an iPad is better than having a tattered book or textbook, right? Giving you something to think, uh, look forward to when it comes to education. Should we be changing the metric around online learning, I guess is my question, right? So that we're not totally dismissing it as a viable opportunity for young people to learn, regardless of who you are. I think that's right. And I think what, I mean, if there is a sort of a silver lining in what uh, we what school has looked like for these last couple of years, it's that a whole lot of kids and a whole lot of parents and really a whole lot of teachers have had some time now to um, 
to, to sort of experience technology in the classroom in different kind of ways and see how they can integrate it. So it's not totally displacing their learning, but finding ways of integrating it into their school day. Because if there's one, I mean, if there's one theme to education reform over decades and, and centuries, it's that schools in general have been pretty resistant to major reforms. And, and part of that is that teaching is really hard and teachers are responding to a lot day in, day out. And so when we would sort of force upon teachers the idea that they should be doing this and that and bring in this new technology, it's hard. And so the, the instinct would be to not do it or to try it and it wouldn't work very well. There would be technological problems and they would drop it. What we have, what we've had for these last couple of years is I think, and I hope, a lot of teachers who are finding ways that they can use technology productively to complement some of that in-person learning and that that will be sticky and that parents will have a sense of how to support their kids at home and that kids will have kind of a, a better way of navigating the technology that they do have. Yeah, and I think that's such a great point, right? Because I think the challenge that we're having now is that it's either or. And it shouldn't be either or. It should be complementary or available just in case. I mean, I want to go to you just still on that topic because you know, I know you from before Common Sense Media and this whole reality of front page news stories and kids sitting on the stoops of Taco Bell and McDonald's doing their homework during this pandemic were probably like like myself, very frightening and disturbing that we were still here, right? Because we knew the homework gap existed. What do you think about this new introduction of technology and what John is talking about? you know, keeping it so that there's home-based broadband so we're not seeing these chilling images of our young people, particularly our young people of color and boy students, sitting outside trying to access somebody else's broadband. To me, it's about the evolution of essential services and, you know, what the promise of technology, you know, we all, we all see these really like wonderful glossy ads for, you know, how Technology can bring a kid into the classroom from treatments in a hospital via like a iPad robot, you know, like all sorts of like really beautiful things. If you don't have the underlying infrastructure in place, if you don't have connectivity to the home, if you don't have devices in the hands of students and you don't have that support in place so that teachers and educators can plan knowing that that is in place, you can't do those things. And so you know, I'd like to start thinking about technology in education as more than just outcomes for reading and writing and arithmetic. I think it's about resilience of access to education, equitable access to education, because, you know, there are lots of reasons why in-person learning might be disrupted. And so it could be, you know, wildfire, flood, it could be a pandemic. And, and, Moving that learning out of the classroom isn't just about the learning. It's also about the social and emotional learning connections you have within all those relationships you have within the school. So one of the really interesting things that I learned, you know, throughout the pandemic, talking to educators is that one of the great aspects of distance learning when it worked right was that you were connecting to a human, right? Like when, when a student could actually see their teacher and have um, a one-to-one -one interaction or a small group interaction where their connection actually allowed for a robust engagement, that was really valuable. You know, if, if you can facilitate that 
there's a lot that you open up in times of crisis to continue connecting to a family that might have been evacuated from their home because of a wildfire, which happened in Oregon. And actually, it was amazing because of the pandemic, because there was already a process in place to set up distance learning. When the wildfire hit, families were able to continue to connect. And students were able to continue to connect to their classmates and their teachers, even from their evacuated location, because that planning was in place, not for the wildfire, but because of the pandemic. Right now, we're seeing a disparity in that ability to resiliently shift right now in in New Jersey and in Louisiana. So in New Jersey, there's a school that's likely going to stay closed till 2022, but the students are back up and learning with digital learning and digital curriculum. In New Orleans, the classrooms are expected to remain closed for some time to come, and there isn't a remote option. And so all those connections plus the learning is halted. And so, you know, it's just, I I feel like it's even more important, not just for, you know, what does this mean for the advancement of curriculum, but also just to keep that institution, that essential institution connected to the people they serve in times of crisis too. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about what you said, right? Because Louisiana, what just happened with the hurricane Folks, this is just not about the pandemic, right? I mean, in my mind, I keep thinking that there are other things that are going to get in the way. We did an event at Brookings during the pandemic with the superintendent of Oregon. I think it was like Reynolds, Oregon or someplace like that. And she mentioned that they were dealing with the wildfires. Alejandro, we've talked about these challenges. We've talked about the disparities that exist among our kids of color. What should government do? I mean, look, we got the infrastructure proposal that's floating around. We've got some money that uh, Senator Markey and others are putting out there for improving broadband access to students in the home. Is that enough or should we be doing something else? These are all very big questions. And, and I think that it's also important to contextualize, to further contextualize the impact to Black and Brown students. So the Hispanic Heritage Foundation actually did a national study which found that Latinx and Black students were most likely to have their grades suffer because of lack of broadband. These students were also most likely to say that they weren't unable to finish their homework because of lack of broadband or Wi-Fi and are the most likely to use a smartphone to have to complete their homework or fill out a a college application. You know, one of, I think, the most important findings is that teachers also said that it was difficult to connect with Black and Brown parents because um, of the parents' lack of, of access to the internet for email communication. So in this particular case, it's not a language barrier or a culture barrier. It is, in fact, an internet barrier that the limited, I think, engagement, not just from the student side, but from the, the parent side. And, and I think that we're also tasking a lot of these students to have to figure out how to do online learning, how to do their homework, but also are faced with becoming, you know, the tech support for their households. Even in families with a broadband connection or parents that were working from home, they all describe the difficulty of navigating these online platforms to navigate or even to troubleshoot. Because depending on the school, you could have you know three different platforms that you're using, depending on uh, the grade level and the type of instruction that the, the instructor wants to engage in. And so I think as we really consider what it's going to take to bridge this divide, to bridge this digital uh, skills gap. I think that it's important that if we really are to meet our community's digital connectivity needs, it's important to acknowledge that there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution. You know, for some areas, it makes sense to um, 
to work together to come up with a, 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 a municipal option or a co-op. And I think, but but when I think about, you know, critical infrastructure, I think of the importance of establishing statewide offices with digital equity officers or a state broadband officer who understand the current state of its broadband infrastructure and is tasked with engaging diverse stakeholders because equity happens at every step of the process, not just in the implementation. And that includes, and it should include members of historically excluded communities, along with policymakers and industry leaders, so that we are establishing a new and sustainable path forward that will stretch our taxpayers' dollars in a way that is efficient and connects as many people as possible as soon as possible. And I think the good news is that the Biden administration really is uh, making this critical funding available to not just incentivize the establishment of new broadband infrastructure, but also funding uh, that's necessary to ensure that we are developing thoughtful and effective uh, digital equity strategies that are responsive to a community's unique needs, limitations, and opportunities. Yeah, and I'm thinking about that as, as you were talking. You know, unfortunately, we're a little lopsided, though, right? And Amina, you could jump in as well on this, and then I'll go back to John on another question. You know, right now, there's more money in infrastructure and not as much money in digital equity and inclusion and literacy. Alejandro, just real quickly from you, I mean, some of these parents, Latina parents, you know, they may not be English speakers and they may not have the digital literacy skills to even navigate their students through these educational challenges. And Amina, I want you to answer after Alejandro, should we be putting more money into equity training or literacy training pretty much on par with what we're doing to deploy broadband? Absolutely. And that's what I think um, is great about the moment that we're living in today is that I think that the Biden administration really understands that uh, we need to not just fund infrastructure buildup, but we need to ensure that we have adoption strategies and programs and culturally responsive interventions that meet communities where they are. You know, as the emergency broadband benefit was established from the FCC last year, we really took it upon ourselves to create, you know, a bilingual information resource with, 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 with videos and kind of, kind of more consumer friendly language so that our community really understood that this, this program was for them, about them, and that they were supported not just through every step of the enrollment process, but also, I think, to help identifying, you know, what is the best internet service provider or the available service provider in, 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 in my area, and how do I select a data plan that, uh, meets my, that meets my family's needs and our long-term budget? So I think that we really have to be responsive to the actual needs of the communities that we're trying to serve. And, and, and I think that hopefully, and, 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 and luckily, we're seeing an influx, an influx of of uh, spending and investment from the Biden administration to ensure that we really are establishing diverse strategies to not just focus on the deployment part, but really focus on affordability, digital skills training, and to, I think, build capacity within uh, local government so that they are developing thoughtful strategies to connect, like I said earlier, as many people as possible, as soon as possible. Right. And I mean it to avoid this becoming a broadband discussion because you know how it is. When you think about the government's role, what do you think of in terms of the government's role in accelerating broadband access, home broadband adoption, institutional infrastructure, you know, that's local? What should we be doing, you know, given that we have this opportunity of the infrastructure proposal? We've got to be able to walk and chew gum. You know, you've got to be able to support deploying broadband infrastructure that's future-proof and universal to connect every home and business. And we also have to ensure that there is an affordability component so that everybody can actually afford to use 
what we just put in the ground. And then we've got to make sure that everybody can make the most out of it, right? We want to maximize these investments. So we also have to have digital inclusion support, digital citizenship support that follows along the the course, the the lifetime of a user taking advantage of these investments, right? Because there's going to be a new product, there's going to be a new program, there's going to be a new application. So we're going to have to continually support people's digital inclusion training. So having those components in place, I think, are all necessary. And we're seeing, I think, from the Biden administration, certainly language that supports that. I think there are the initial investments in the bipartisan infrastructure package support that just this week, the inclusion of additional funding for the emergency connectivity fund for the budget reconciliation package supports that. So I think we're headed in the right direction. You know, one thing that I would love to see is is to stop so many silos <laughs> and actually start to to start to think of this more comprehensively and holistically. And and that I think is something again a unique role that government can play if we can actually bring you know all these different entities that have some piece of infrastructure, broadband, or digital inclusion, or affordability, and have them talking to each other, that I think that would be really important as well. And I don't know that we've invested in that as as much quite yet, you know, but I do think that, you know, we've got this great opportunity in front of us. I see the right components appearing in, in the various um, proposals that are floating around. And so, I'm very hopeful that you know we'll we'll start to at least seed some investments, not just in infrastructure and deployment, but also in in areas like digital inclusion and equity. And uh, and then we're seeing some permanent moves towards you know addressing affordability over the long haul. So that's all very exciting. You know, the one thing that's missing is a permanent conversation around um, the homework gap and you know technology in the classroom and in the home. That to me is a little bit concerning because. As we've just discussed, you know, it takes a lot of coordination to make sure that a device is utilized by the student, it has the right stuff on it so that it matches up with the digital curriculum that's being deployed by the school. That level of coordination means that it's good to have institutions engaged. And so that's what the ECF, the Emergency Connectivity Fund, does, which is different from some of the other programs. So I'm hopeful that we'll see these types of institutional supports also lifted up as well. Yeah. And John, you know, I love this podcast because It's so interesting, right? Like you said in the beginning, that school teachers and administrators were the sheroes and heroes of the pandemic for our nation's students because they were exposed to this digital divide that they weren't really dealing with every day, right? And so the question I have for you, because just like Amina said, I placed this in this concept of no child left offline. It was sort of modeled after no child left behind. The same things that my colleagues have said in terms of availability, affordability, access to devices. I mean, should we be having in schools an office of innovation, right? Or some type of, you know, collaborative response where schools are able to sort of think through not just the device or the broadband, but the long-term vision on how we're going to prepare our students for this 21st century economy. I, I do like that idea. And I liked Alejandro's idea earlier about building some capacity at the state level. I mean, and I think all of this speaks also to the idea that this isn't a one-time investment that's going to solve a problem, you know, now and forever. But when we're talking about digital literacy and we're talking about digital inclusion and equity, those are going to be ongoing costs, really. And, and there's, there's like quite clearly a federal role to play in, in addressing some of those costs. 
And I mean, we've, you know, we've talked about how schools were, were sort of caught flat-footed by the pandemic and how that, that maybe is understandable. But if, if we are thinking forward about what's, you know, what's the next crisis to come, as Amina was talking about with Louisiana and New York, New Jersey, like there, there are going to be needs, there are going to be disruptions, probably like we haven't seen before. I mean, I do a lot of work in New Orleans and a lot of those kids, they're just getting back to school now, but they, they have not been connected or involved in school at all. And that, that is like by and large a preventable problem. And I, so I think there is, there is certainly a role for building some capacity at the school level. All of this is going to take funding and it's not just going to take this, this sort of like single infusion from the American Rescue Plan or even the infrastructure package, but it's going to take, it's going to take a sustained effort to make sure that, that schools have what they need. And I'm thinking, John, too, just to stand you as our sole expert educational practitioner here, right? We should be looking at this as the opportunity for our students to learn new skills. My daughter, 14 years old, I didn't like it on her online. She didn't like being online. But she actually learned some new skills, how to work collaboratively, how to be independent in her work, how to think creatively and outside the box when, you know, just posed, when questions are just posed in the classroom. Should we be looking at that as well in terms of the occupational skills? That our students are learning? Yeah, it's a great question. I, and I think schools initially sort of looked at the technology as the mode of instruction, not the subject of instruction. It was just like the way, that you, the only way you had to communicate with students. But certainly if, if, if they can pivot in that way and start thinking about this, not just as this is the, the only way we can talk to, to all of you, but there are things to learn here and things to learn that don't just have this immediate application for making sure that school continues, but that are going to be useful for students for, for, uh, you know, a whole long time. I think that that's that can only be a good thing. So, Mina, I'm going to jump it over to you and Alejandro with some closing remarks or responses to what you heard. It strikes me when I just heard John mention costs, you know, that these are going to be ongoing costs. One thing that we did find in our third report, you know, was that if you don't connect a student, so the impact on a disconnected student, and we estimated that they would have a lower GPA as a, due to the learning loss and the lack of digital skills, inability to access online education, and then just you know, generally going forward. That resulted, translates into a, about 2K lower annual income. And that results in about $22 billion to $33 billion in annual GDP loss plus their additional public costs to each one of these students that are being left offline. You know, the cost to close per our estimate was about 4 billion to 8 billion. So that's 4 billion to 8 billion to permanently close the K-12 digital divider, at least to continually address it versus the 22 to $33 billion in annual GDP loss. It seems like those numbers make sense. (laughs) So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that if, you know, we are able to start to make some of these commitments now as a country that, you know, we can start to stem some of these losses down the road. Alejandro, you want to chime in or you want to answer this question that just stays on my mind about what COVID has really taught us about educational inequity? Yeah, of course. And I think that, you know, I'd love to kind of um, underscore a couple of specific kind of points. So first of all, I think that as the nature of work continues to change and the tech equity gap widens, so does the urgency to ensure that every student has access to a quality education. And today, 
that requires an at-home broadband connection. Black and brown students are already underrepresented in STEM fields, you know, for a number of reasons, including disparities in access to STEM courses in schools. But I think that that all feels the glowing concern that as black and brown students are shut out from digital learning, that that will also lead to them being left behind or underqualified for the jobs of the future. I think a recent a study by Deutsche Bank estimates that if the digital gap persists, you know, studies shows that the negative consequences faced by Black and, and, and Latino families is, is that they will be underprepared for about 86% of U.S. jobs by the year 2045. And so I think for, for, for me and, and our work, you know, the future health and economic well-being of historically marginalized communities is dependent on how quickly we can get everyone connected and ensuring that, um, and that means regardless of where you live, regardless of, of your economic uh, standing, you know, it really is about all of us working together to establish effective strategies at the state and local level that will help meet the needs of our communities in real time. First and foremost, I want to thank John, Amina, and Alejandro for joining us for this Tech Tank podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. I just want to say that I think something that you all said that resonates as a common theme that our listeners should be listening to is that there is a cost of not just being disconnected from the internet, but there's a cost from being disconnected from education. Those numbers, Amina, that you shared just keep reminding me of why we so you know, diligently and vigilantly fought Brown versus Board of Education, that we did not want separate but unequal. But hopefully we'll get there because I think all of you have mentioned the more people at the table, not just the educators, but the advocates, the government leaders, as well as industry, we might actually be able to get something done. Our kids are counting on us. So thank you for this conversation. I've been wanting to have this for a really long time. No child left offline. If you haven't seen it, it's on my expert page at Brookings, and I encourage us to keep this conversation going. So let me just say this. You're listening to Tech Tank. We thank you for listening to another episode where conversations around tech and technology are done in palatable bites, not bits. Please follow this and other issues on our Tech Tank newsletter, which offers fresh content daily. And we appreciate the guests for joining us on this important conversation. And we hope that you also enjoyed the conversation as well. Thank you, everybody. I'm Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies and the Director of the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings and the co-host of our podcast. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast. And sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brooklyn.